Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. Today, we're talking to Anna Griffiths. As a chartered member of IOSH, Anna is responsible for the management of health, safety and well-being and security for the Science Museum Group. Anna has an MSc in Environmental Health and is currently studying for an MSc in Behaviour Change at the University of Derby. Hi Anna, great to see you again and uh, have an opportunity to catch up on what we've been talking about over time, about uh, health, safety, environment, well-being and all those things which uh, are part of our profession. I was intrigued to understand that uh, you also look after security within your role. Does that, is that seems to be the thing now with health and safety, that we get things like sustainability and other related compliance activity? Hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, nice to be back. It is a slightly unusual one, I think, security. I think certainly there's a lot of additions now to health and safety, as you said. Environmental food safety is another one that I think seems to sort of get home in as part of that. I think the key thing first with security is around the governance and I think we've got really good established processes now around health and safety and maybe areas like security, sustainability is maybe a little bit newer and actually being able to learn from what we have in place in health and safety is really good which is where we took that step um, to move security. So have you found that sort of applying the principles of health and safety management to other topics um, actually is quite helpful because there is that structure from things like the Plan Do Check Act and successful management, um, health and safety man- successful health and safety management. Is, do you think that, that what you found? Yes, definitely. I think it's having that framework. So when it's Plan Do Check Act, having more of a framework around maybe KPIs, monitoring, and then within organisations, whether that's committees and I guess even policies, roles and responsibilities, being able to apply all of that, strategies, that sort of thing, I think really helps in any area really. And I've found it myself in, in the role that I've taken on as chief executive, there are things that I get more involved in. But actually, when I think about my career in health and safety and the profession is that they don't seem to be as challenging because I just apply those principles, which is about you know, the people, the systems of work, the safe environments, the you know, safe people, that kind of approach. And it, it, it seems to come together, which... Um, thinks a great advert for those people that want to get into a multiple activity like what you are, what you're doing. I think that's a, it's a great uh, example there. No, definitely. And I think there's a lot about culture as well in a way that sort of, I guess that's helped us. So having that sort of that health and safety culture embedded as part of the organisation and actually looking at how we can apply it elsewhere. So it's, it's not sort of an add-on and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that, that's really helped, helped us in, in all areas really, in health and safety and security and um, in everything. So the other area is that I want to just explore you. How is it that um, you've ended up where you've ended up? I think it's always interesting for people to try and understand, you know, how did you how did you end up in, in such a senior role? Yeah, so I took a slightly different route. Or I, I think most people's routes into health and safety is probably a little bit different, although um, 
hopefully that's started to change. I think more and more people are maybe seeing it as a as a career now, which is great, um, sort of from university. So I my degree's in biology. From that, sort of a bit of, um, didn't really know what to do. I went to do a master's in environmental health, which includes health and safety, food safety, environment, amongst other things. And then started working in health and safety for, well, I first did a placement on the Olympics, working for one of the catering companies, and then sort of got into health and safety from there, really. Um, so very briefly at West Yorkshire Police and then moved to the museum sector. And I've worked my way up in the organisation. So I've been there nine years now and sort of worked my way up. I really like it. I think there's so much variety, which is what I enjoy in the role. Like we get involved in anything from constructions, we have rail operations, we have shows for learning, um, and we have visitors who do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, so it's yeah, it's there's never a boring day. <laughs> no, and I guess that's the that's the delight about it is that organisationally, always what I always like to understand, whereabouts do you sit in the organisation? Are you part of uh, operations, human resources? So we're part of the people and culture team, which is what was more probably more traditionally known as human resources, but um, we're people and culture. So sit alongside so the people team, um, culture, culture being a big part of that, culture change, and also with volunteering. So... Yeah, we're sort of, um, the way the organisation split, we have sort of site functions and national functions. Um, so we support the whole organisation as part of that. I've, I've moved around, we used to be part of estates, but actually when we were in estates, it was, for us as an organisation, it felt like we were sort of in one of our highest risk activities, um, been looking after the building fabric, we were enforcing them within the same team and actually um, did it have sort of that right level of impartiality which is why um, we moved yeah yeah I think everyone does it slightly differently (laughs) no and I think it's a well-trodden path in terms of um, where I suppose from my sort of experiences are that when you have an organizational change there is this question about where does health and safety sit and I've had seen examples of uh, sitting within general counsel so in in the legal bit um, facilities and property, um, human resources. Um, so I think pretty much predominantly in the organisations it's been with human resources that um, I've worked into. And it's big because of that separation between the operational part where you can get sucked into those decisions which may be made because of you know the hierarchy and, and those things, which is the self-interest in making the, the right decision and pressures that can be placed on practitioners professionals that sitting outside of that in a sort of a more like a hr business partner mode i think is is a good model no definitely i agree and i think i guess it's reflecting probably the change in health and safety and where we've come from maybe health where health and safety team did everything and sort of did the risk assessments and did all of that to I think the world where we're in now, where actually health and safety are much more about having that management system, having the framework in place and monitoring um, and having it sitting outside of sort of core operational functions means that you really get that focus. And, and actually, I think that really helps with accountability and managers taking accountability for their own team's health and safety and managing that. And we're there to support and advise, but we're not doing it for them, I guess. Yeah. Though, and I suppose the, the big part about that is making sure that you can help the management team and the operational teams do what they need to do by education, coaching, mentoring, and, and that sort of approach. Is that is that your way of going about it? 
Yeah, definitely. We we try and work very closely with the teams and it's that they're seeing us there to, to help them, not to sort of stop them from doing things and um, sort of enable them to do something safely. But it's it's giving them the skills. So having, whether it's a training program, whether it's um, regular meetings with teams and giving them the skills to know where to find information sometimes. So from my perspective, because our teams do such different things, we do expect the managers, I guess, to to research to some extent and to understand their team's health and safety and how what they need to know, what they need to have in place. So it's been able to guide them to that information and supporting them and implementing that within their processes and providing the wider training. So in a range of different areas. So one of the things that, uh, that you, you obviously do is that you, you influence uh, senior people. What are your sort of tips or tricks or whatever it is you want to call it? What's your strategy in influencing and trying to get support from senior people? I think it's, it is really important getting senior leadership on board. I think they are key to any successful um, health and safety. I'm not saying it doesn't have its challenges sometimes. I think we've probably tried uh, different approaches. We have a range of um, KPIs, but I think sometimes some of that can get lost a little bit in the numbers. um, And it's important to really understand what's behind it, really. I've got to say, we've got a really supportive leadership team, which is really good. I think the way I approach it is, some of it is by showing them their roles and responsibilities. So obviously what, what, what the regulations say and what they need to know and what the potential impacts are for them but then for me it's more about what's happened within the organization so if something has happened explaining to them what the consequences are or why we do something in a certain way so it really is that dialogue stakeholder consultation is incredibly important for us it's something we do a lot of as an organization and so really getting um, the leadership team on board. Um, so we're looking at our business continuity and emergency preparedness at the moment. And it's really getting them, them on board with the process and meeting with them. What's the steps we're going to go through, explaining why we're doing it and really getting that buy-in, I guess, um, to then for them to support it and champion it in the organisation is really important. Do you find that you have to think and speak like a manager I know you are a manager anyway in terms of what you're managing your function but to understand those people that have got board responsibilities for a range of things including you know the safety and the health and the well-being of the of the team the organization and those visitors that uh, you have to look after not that have to look after you will look after so do you, do you feel you're you're more like a manager or you do you feel you're part of the management team I think it it does feel as part of the management team. I think it's it's interesting. I guess it's it's thinking about both really. I think I think you have to you have to see it from their perspective, but then um, and being able to understand maybe why things are done in a certain way, but then being able to bring in sort of the health and safety element and explaining why why we do things. I guess so. I think it's seeing both sides of it really and being able to explain things. So this, um, so does that include you, you training them, or is it just the opportunity to coach and to give them examples? Is that how you go about it? We do have a range of training across the organisation. So first, we made a decision that all um, executive members would do um, IOSH leading safely um, to give them that awareness, um, really. But that is more around awareness. Um, a lot of it then is done through executive meetings or group health and safety committees where we 
where we then discuss the detail. Mm. Um, so, yes, they've got the the background, sort of the the general background, but actually then we make it much more organisational specific. Um, and then it is a conversation. I think it's it's highlighting maybe where the challenges are, highlighting why we do things. Um, and then it's a conversation with them of, okay, so we're seeing this challenge. What do, what are they seeing from their perspective and from their team's perspective? And then it's how can we help them and how can we support their teams? But also, what do we need their teams to maybe do differently? So it is a is a two way approach really. So um, moving it, moving on a little bit in terms of uh, those the big issues that we've recently had. Uh, how, how popular were you when uh, COVID came about? Did you become the centre of all things to do with the pandemic? It's definitely been a challenging two huh. years. Yeah. <laughs> it's been busy. Uh, yeah, health and safety definitely, and and actually well being. And I think uh, we were just starting our well being sort of journey, I guess. Um, and so, so health, safety, and well being all it all became very important. I mean, uh, we were actually doing uh, quite a, sort of an emergency preparedness exercise just before COVID sort of hit, and looking at our business continuity plans and sort of how, um, yeah, it's just how the timing fell really. But it was quite good timing. <laughs> No, definitely. It's a lot more structure around COVID, I think, than... So we've always had our standard health and safety structure, but actually I think COVID brought in, because we were dealing with one big thing, which impacted on the entire organisation, that's brought in a, stru- a management structure um, from our executives sort of in making decisions through to various groups around operations. And then how we all feed into that has been really important. I think more procedures than I can count have been written. Right. <laughs> And revised at various times. All the changes that Um, sort of came out almost weekly. (laughs) Definitely. I think we changed our face covering procedure about 20 times. Uh Right. So so was was the organisation pretty much furloughed or was there things that needed to be kept going? So some colleagues were furloughed. So front of house, anybody who's sort of involved in opening the doors to visitors uh, were furloughed. But we did keep a number of things going, uh, particularly after the first lockdown. The, fir- the first lockdown was slightly different, but in subsequent lockdowns, we have a number of construction sites, which remained sort of up and running. And um, any any improvements work generally really sort of so. Um, our estates, facilities, teams remained on site and doing their activities. And then in, in subsequent lockdowns after the first ones, we did continue with sort of our, our, our back of house function. So we have conservation teams. Uh, so they did continue with their activities. So a bit of a mixture, probably a half and half. We were still sort of doing a lot of the business as usual activities, really, but with COVID added on to it, which was yeah. challenging sometimes. And, and what was the scale then? How many locations do you look after or have uh, group responsibilities for? So we've got five museums and then we've got two storage sites. Uh, so seven sites in total. And, and the repopulation, how's, how's that worked? Is that, um, was that something which was a challenge or did it, did it go pretty smoothly? I think in a way, it's probably, it was probably actually easier for visitors than it has been for colleagues. I think with visitors in the first, we had time coming out of the first lockdown because we were, museums were one of the last places to reopen. So we had time to see what everyone else was doing and learn from that and plan things. So we did a lot of planning sort of during June, July, how we would reopen capacities, what that would look like, social distancing, face coverings, all of that. So 
it, it was really useful having that time um, to plan for it. And, and we didn't rush into it. We did take that time. So a couple of sites we did open a little bit later to give us that time. And then as we've gone through each stage, we've just continued to review it. So we, we did close again, the November lockdowns. But by then we sort of knew how to reopen, I guess. So we sort of kept everything. Um, and then it's been a case of reviewing things as government has um, removed measures how far did we want to go and removing those controls gradually as and when people felt comfortable really so we get feedback from our visitors we get feedback from colleagues to understand how they're feeling and colleagues everyone's got used to working differently i think <laughs> so, and so we've we've invented a hybrid working model i think it's probably as many organizations are doing we're still working working at how that works in practice no, and that's the um, that's the thing now is that the, the as I put it the genie's out of the bottle is that uh, it is possible, and I, and I guess there's a there's a group of people that they can't do that and they can't work in that way, but there are a lot of people that can, and it's been proved that it's been done. And I think um, not being political here, but Rhys Mogg has probably tried to establish a an approach with people going back to work within civil service and within governments that may be sort of contradictory to what the employees now and colleagues now actually expect as part of their work life. Definitely. I think it's it's interesting seeing uh, when you sort of see out there nowadays, I think most organisations now are offering some form of hybrid working and it's important to be on site. I think it's nice to see colleagues, to be on site sometimes and, and see what's happening. I think you have different conversations, but having that hybrid approach... I think for us works really well because it gives the opportunity to have that time from home, have that work-life balance, um, but also been been at the museums however many days a week, depending on um, individuals' roles, provides the opportunity for that networking, those conversations. And in a health and safety world, actually sometimes just seeing things because <laughs> that's important. Um, sometimes you might notice something that you wouldn't see if you were working from home, um, which is also useful. <laughs> yeah. So, so as a health and safety professional and compliance, how big a risk do you think this hybrid working is? Do, do you think people blow it out of proportion, or is it there are some issues that need to be addressed here? I think. I mean, I think it's 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 a new thing that we need to consider, and I think with anything new, there's always going to be some unknowns until it's been sort of trialed and tested a little bit more. But I think there have been organisations that have been doing it for longer than than we have so we can learn from those uh, it's, it's important to provide the right framework so whether that's for individuals home setup and also when they come into the office make sure we've got the right frameworks in place and also the right support and I think that's really important for managers supporting their teams but also for individuals when they are working from home. So the what, what do you see is the, the, the um, role of managers then with the people are working in a hybrid way what what would you be expecting them to be considering and and ensuring it is in place? For me the role of managers is I mean outside of sort of the the setup, I guess, um, around sort of their setup at home. I think it's it's checking that how they're doing. Um, are they checking in regularly? I work quite closely with my team, so we have a Teams chat channel where we all sort of chat. Um, and then I, I mean, I've, I think I probably speak to most of them every day, even if it's just a quick Teams message. But checking in with them, and sometimes maybe with bigger teams, particularly, there's not that same close working relationship, and it's important that managers are checking in with individuals particularly if they're not seeing them um seeing how they're doing and you can't always tell over 
teams either, how people are feeling. Maybe people can maybe hide things a little bit. Hide's the wrong word, but I think maybe don't maybe they don't show mm. things in the same way and maybe don't share things. I think it's it's a very different conversation over teams sometimes. So I know I'm trying to see my team in person. It's not every week, it's probably not every month for trying to see them in person regularly. So we still get some of that contact um, and that time just to check in and just having a chat rather than formally going through a kind of a list of items to discuss, really just having a conversation with them. I think that's that's the biggest challenge for managers, particularly if they're not used to doing that. No. So there's, um, there's the big conversations around um, social isolation. So there's... Um, people that had been furloughed for long periods of time. So this feeling of um, where do they fit? What's their life about? Any of those experiences in in the organisation? Had you got a a strategy around it? I think one of the interesting things we've seen is people being furloughed um, is when they've come back, how they felt. So actually, do they want to come back? Do they want to go and do something different? I think it's been an interesting one. We did have, uh, so we did have, uh, various processes in place for bringing people back off furlough so we did on-site inductions with them when they came back so go through how things have changed in, in the organization what we'd put in place to keep them safe uh, so went through all of that process when people came back when people were on furlough as well managers uh, keeping in touch with them was really important I think it's it's interesting. I think it's it's providing an opportunity really for maybe people. Some people have maybe found different opportunities from it. Others, they've maybe found different ways of working, I guess. Uh, but yeah, important to make sure nobody feel, feels forgotten about, I guess. Yes, and I think that's the, the thing about trying to recognise. I mean, we had, um, Practice 42 had a number of the team that were on furlough. And when they came back to do their normal work, which they were doing at a, a tempo, um, when they came back, we realised very quickly that, and they realised very quickly that it took them some time to get back into that routine. So we, there was a stage return. So I suppose what we sort of deferred to was like a return to work. So when somebody's been off for a while, how do you then cater for them coming back? Do they come back full time or do they come back part time? How do you make those reasonable adjustments? And how do you deal with that? So um, I think there's been a recognition that that has been um, and hopefully hasn't taken a toll. And I think it sort of leads me into another part about what well-being and and, and what well-being's about is that it, that is one of your items. I guess it's on your agenda. It's, is that pushed by you, or is that pushed by the uh, your colleagues in the people function? So it does sit as part of um, my responsibilities, but we do work very closely with the people team. So um, with uh, particularly the um, culture team, so uh, the talent culture team, because we, it sits as part of our role because again, around sort of that governance and providing that framework and we can provide that, but then working very closely with talent and culture because they can influence particularly organizational challenges so it's how we encompass all of those areas really and so yeah working together the big question is what is well-being what do you see it as being i think uh, it's it's a good question i think for me uh, it's well-being encompasses a number of different things so it's it's not just about your workplace but it's also your family friends relationships finances health all of those things will impact someone's well-being and how they're feeling 
And it's important to recognize that we all have well-being. It's not just about mental health. Everyone has well-being across a range of different areas. Yeah, and it's good to hear that uh, and I had sort of quite a, a tunnel view when I th- this word, word well-being was being bandied around and I was thinking, so what, what does that mean really? Is it it's about mental health? So yeah, get that, understand that there will be people which at certain times may find themselves in a state which isn't where they would normally be for, for various reasons. And my colleague at... Uh, British Telecom, I asked Ellen about, you know, what is well-being at British Telecom? And she came up with a whole list of things which they've got on their well-being agenda. And I just thought, wow, okay, yeah, I get it now. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we've had experiences of people that have had, and over time in, in my job is that people have found that, um, you know, their partnerships have, um, have broken down and, um, you know, somebody's had to take the burden of the the mortgage and you know not have any money or access to money all sorts of very what might be seem to be obtuse things but that's actually what it's about is that at certain times is how an organization can help somebody to get to a state where you know you are considering their well-being definitely and i think there's, there's so many different stages in life um so one of the areas we're looking at is stages when people have got children so when maybe when people start school uh, children start school sorry or um, maybe they come back to work and all of those actually are all going to have an impact on how someone's feeling at that time and and how they're able to manage the different challenges um, they've got even at secondary school that can be challenging for a child and it's how how the parents are supported as well as part of that I think is important and uh, and the freaking uh, as health and safety practitioners professionals ensure those things are on the agenda. I, I think that that's why working with our partners in HR or people um, management is that they're they're on the same page, and it's about working together to see how we can do that thing. So rather than being about, so I'll tell you what, we'll leave, we'll have a bowl of fruit in every office. Doesn't really. It's good, you know, it's good intent, but it's a bit. Sometimes it's a bit like somebody struggling to figure out how they meet the well-being agenda. Whereas, you know, there are things which happen, and it's about us being, you know, considerate about it, having empathy, um, thinking about it in a, in a constructive way to make people's position. I suppose it's about their state at any point in time. So, are they well now? They could be. Are they well next week or in the next ten years? Is that like you say? It's different, different things for different people, different stages in their life. Definitely, and I think it's important to recognise the manager's role in that as well, and actually how, as an organisation, we support managers supporting their teams, and and I guess seeing things as well, and knowing their their team members so that they can maybe see how they are if someone um, is having a challenging time. Because I think we all go from one week to the next; things change in our lives, um, and providing that empathy I guess and that support for managers to to know how to start that conversation sometimes if it is really important and I think there's a lot of famous books about sort of asking oh how are you doing today and it's sort of asking it a few times and yeah because no one ever says it first time but actually if you say if you ask them a couple of times they're more likely to say how they're really feeling and it goes back to your point about mixing it up it's great that we can do what we're doing now which is you know you're where you are I'm in my home office today, but it doesn't, there's nothing better than actually being and seeing and being there with people. And uh, there was something which we used to call management by walkabout. And um, 
in the in the past there's a guy called Carl Gross that I worked with when we had cable and wireless as a, it was a probably remember them as having franchises around the country for cable networks etc and we used to go to a franchised area and we'd go and have a walk around and just see what's going on and, and go into people's houses and ask how it, how it looks for you and how's it what's it like what's what people were doing and that was great and it was a good example from my point of view about so you need to get out there and see what's going on but but understanding that sometimes people won't give if you if you pick up the phone and say, how's things? They're going to say, great, let's get on with what the conversation needs to be. Definitely. It's something we've been doing as part of a hybrid working um, group is going around the sites and and just popping into offices and asking people, how are you finding it? How are you finding me back on site? Is is it work, what's working for you? What's not working? And getting that feedback, I think is really invaluable to then be able to act on it. Because if you don't know, actually, we can't make a strategy when it's for hybrid working, for wellbeing, for health and safety, as management, we can't make a strategy without discussing with the teams how they're feeling and the challenges they're maybe seeing. It's important to get that insight to then be able to look at, okay, where can we provide that support? It's a bit like the fruit bowl. <laughs> actually, it might not be what people want. What do they actually want? And where can we maybe help? So so on that sort of um, what you're describing there leads into a big area within any system or where you go about managing managing risk. Is this part about consultation do, do have you have you got an approach to consultation and what, what would that be so that people can maybe get a view get a sense of what it's about in, in other words it's not just setting up a safety committee so we we take various approaches to consultation depending on what it is so if at a team level the managers will work with their teams and the teams are very much involved so things like risk assessments even if a manager is doing it they are very much encouraged to discuss with the team understand from the team what the risks are from their perspective how they're seeing things and really important that they get that opportunity to feed in so it is that two-way communication process we do have trade unions so we work closely with them big during covid so working with them and getting feedback um, from them and then through our committee structure working with the managers and then they will communicate those things to the team and get the feedback for more specific areas so we're currently developing a new health and safety reporting system at the moment um, for example so we're building that with our ict teams and we will meet with the key users because Whilst I know the functionality, I know the data that needs to come out of it. I'm not the person who's using it day in, day out. And it's really important that for them, it's it's easy to use. They can capture all the information, how it works for them. So as part of that, we do demo sessions. They get to trial it. We will then get their feedback, which will then get built into the system. So where we're doing things which are very team specific, we really work closely with them to make sure it works for them and incorporating it as part of their everyday work, I guess rather than an add-on that they something else they have to do and that's what you're describing is the sort of the it's more than just about you know do we do we talk to the unions about things and that sort of um, or representative employee safety you know so so it's that whole you know what's this thing about the consultation at risk assessment level there's, there's a lot to it isn't there definitely and i think it's so important that individuals are involved so even when we do audits for example we, we will always speak to a member of the team as well as speaking to the manager to understand where they've been involved what their understanding of the health and safety within the team is to understand what, what opportunities they've had to be involved as well um, so i think that's a key part they're the ones doing the job at the end of the day so really important that they're involved i don't want to give away too much here but um i think 
quite a lot of things which have come out of solving issues when you're looking at controls or safe systems of work or whatever. Probably didn't come from me, but it came from the people I spoke to. And uh, it's nice to see because it's a bit like, well, they, they know, so it's not. you don't have to be this, you know, I'm coming here with my high-vis jacket on. It's like, you know... I'm Superman, I'm going to rescue you from all those things which are going to harm you. Actually, they probably know how to do that. It's just about letting that be given over by getting to know what the, what people are doing. Definitely. I always say we're, we're not experts in everything. We can't no. be. It's such a wide range. We can't be experts. We need to know where to find the information from. But actually, a lot of the time you get that information from the individuals and speaking to them and, and where we can help is by providing that guidance and that framework in how to implement it and yeah, how to have that safe work and environment. And how does that make you feel when, to... you, when you do that sort of stuff? <laughs> I think it's for me. It's important. I think that they they feel valued, mm. um, which yeah. I think is really important. What about you, though? I know um, in terms of what you do as your job, everyday job, is that is that what you do it for? Is it? Um, oh, um, I, do, I like the challenge. I yeah. think. I think that's that's why I do it. I think I find I find it interesting. So, if you do a slightly different investigation, maybe, and actually being able to go on that. I guess that journey in mm -hmm. a way. So you might start asking a question and then finding, you sort of start discovering something else um, and then working out ways you can do things. So I'm, I'm studying for a master's in behavior change and so I'm currently, currently writing my essay at the moment and looking at behavior change and it's around, well, so around well-being and how um, we've got a well-being app. Um, and I think it's, for me, it's really interesting seeing how, what are those different steps and where can we influence change and what can we do? Uh, and I like going away, sort of finding solutions and trying to, I guess, trying to work out a problem in a way. For me, that, that's the bit I like is when you sort of end up with a bit of a spider web, yeah. I guess, in a yeah, way. Yeah. Um, and then it's how you can bring it all together. For me, I find that's what I find really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned about your accident reporting uh, approach that um, you're working on now. So the, there is this uh, looking at how do organisations measure their performance. There's the sort of the, the lagging indicators, which we know are the accidents, near misses, those the events which have occurred. So ill health, harm. And on the other side, there's the leading indicators, which, you know, maybe the number of risk assessments you've done, inspections undertaken. So, so do you use a combination? We do, yes. Yeah, so in our, I call them KPIs just because it's sort of known terminology. Mm -hmm. We don't specifically refer to them as KPIs, but we report on both areas. So for incidents, also near misses, um, that's an area we've been looking at recently and sort of how we can learn from those. And then training, so how many individuals have completed various training, audits, what audits have we done, what inspections have we done, and what actions have come out of that. So we do use both. I think, but for me, even with both, it's, it can't just be about the numbers. So saying you've done five audit, that doesn't really mean anything. It's like, right, what came out of it and what are we going to do about it? And why did why did we find those things? We always talk about root causes with incidents, but it's important to look at that with, for me, with audits as well. And it's like, okay, so this wasn't in place. Why was it not in place? Uh, and then really getting to the bottom of that. So I think it's important not to focus too much on the numbers for me and sort of look at the, de the detail as well. So do you, do you go about the approach where if you say that um, as part of your plan for whatever year it is that you'll do 
20 locations or 10 locations or this number and then you say did we deliver on those numbers do you do, you do it like that is that a way of saying you're doing what you said you're going to do type thing so it holds you to account as well so yeah for audits we have um, a plan for the year so all of our teams are um, sort of rated depending on the risk level um, and it's done over three years um, and we will say so this year we will do all of these audits um, for these sites and then we report back on those we've tried different approaches and it's been interesting trying do we stagger them or do we do it sort of all in one week we have a focus week uh, and actually we're finding the focus week in a way works well because it sort of gets everyone not together, but I think it gets everyone to, everyone knows that's the week, health and safety are going to come and do their audit and there's one report at the end. So everybody also gets to see what's come out from the other teams as well and learning from that. So it's always the approach we took with our external audits and that's how we started to do our internal audits as well, which is working really well. Moving on to another sort of area, which um, seems to fall under health and safety and I've I've always wanted to try and make sure that people recognise that fire safety sometimes doesn't come as part of the credentials, but that's where I started off in health and safety, I think, with the fire officer coming in and saying, I'm going to close the place down, which was under the old Fire Prevention Act. And it was like, it, that, that was the bad, that was health and safety for me at the time, and I was in what was called personnel then. So do, do, does fire safety fall to you or does it fall to somebody else? So the management sort of do do watching uh, make sure we've got fire risk assessments and providing advice force to the team in terms of a lot of the other things that come under fire safety such as the facility side of things that comes under facilities the operations teams look after things like the evacuation plans all of that side of things but similar to health and safety really we make sure the framework is in place and we do we do outsource our fire risk assessments it's a decision we made but we do we do commission all of that side of things yes we're finding that organizations are realizing that the level of competency you need to deliver them and when I used to deliver them I look at what our guys deliver now and I just think wow it's just you know it's at another level and such big complex buildings for us they're not straightforward I've done I've done office accommodation before uh, the team are comfortable doing uh, and competent to do office blocks but when you've got visitors you've got very complex buildings various exhibitions it's important to have that skill set really and somebody who can bring in a little bit of different expertise to look at it sometimes and for me it's important having that second pair of eyes it's why we do external audits because and even for our internal audits uh, we do mix the team up I think it's, it's really important having that external input sometimes whether that's from a different team member or from an external person as well and that sort of uh, leads me on to this thing of um, when you when you're measuring how much benchmarking do you do or is there an opportunity to, for you to do benchmarking or work within a specialist group or a trade group so there is a museum or heritage network um it's mostly around sort of south but it's it's a number of different heritage organizations so uh, from other museums to other sort of heritage sector that is really useful uh, it's really useful to have those conversations and see how other institutions might be doing things within our sector so things like um cdm for example is applies in some of areas like events or exhibitions in maybe slightly differently to the more traditional construction so it's really useful having those conversations about how that how they've applied it and how we've applied it and we able to compare um, and we do compare incident data um, as well and that sort of thing it's always useful um, looking outside as well and it's part of the reason we put this program together is to give people opportunity to get an insight into what you do and what we do and share that because sometimes if you're working on your own you're not with a group of people it's a, it's a good way of just uh, keeping up to date with things and for people to uh, tap into that. 
So picking up on your exhibitions um, and those sort of projects, which we've maybe called projects or those things which are temporary. So do you, you do treat CDM, construction design and management process with those or do you run this as, as a project or how do you have you sort of interpreted it? So they do come under um, CDM. They are builds. So we do uh, follow those. So they are projects internally but then we do have devolves slightly varies as to how we do it sometimes we will bring in a principal contractor principal designer from externally sometimes the teams uh, will take on some of those roles it entirely depends on the, the size and the scale of what they're doing really and and how, how have you gone around it's a bit of detail here but uh, when cdm changed recently there's this thing about including maintenance into cdm and how did you approach it so the team have been working with our um, our facilities team to to work out really how it applies to them. It's uh, one of the things we're working on at the moment. So we have we have a contractor management process as well. So it's working at how the two cross over and where we might have covered things under CDM under our contractor management um, processes and how we build it in really. So when CDM first came out, it was very easy to go, right, this is the CDM paperwork. And now what we're keen to look at is how do we incorporate it really as part of other other processes we might have in place. No, I've got sort of like a right from the beginning of CDM, it's it's one of my first projects I think when I had when the regs first came out was to interpret them and apply them to a business which was well probably then about twenty five thousand doing all sorts of projects which would be deemed to be CDM. And over time, when they've changed it, I'm thinking, why do you keep on changing it, really? Because it's just a process. It's just like, you know, you know, it's got all the components of what you do anyway. And when the maintenance thing came came out, I got a bit, I think I started doing something on LinkedIn at the time, having, trying to stir it up a bit. But like, you know, this is just like business as usual. You know, you'll have risk assessments, you'll have method statements, you'll have competency, you'll have all these things in there. Why put a layer on top of it to... You know, make this thing you know sit in the CDM folder. Yeah, and I think that was our challenge at first. It was easy in a way to overcomplicate things when it first came out because I think everyone went, "Oh, we've got to do all of this, and how do we do all of this?" And it was easy. Yeah, well, we've got to tick all these things. So here's a piece of paper yeah. in a way, I guess, that make sure you do all these things. And now it's it's about how do we bring it as part of much more. Um, yeah, what what we already do. Yeah, and that's the point about pragmatism and this thing about not having paperwork for paperwork's sake and um, taking a bit of a stand to it, I suppose. So just on the, the influences on how you behave or how you organise things and do things, do, do you have, um, are you insured or are you self-insured or how, how does it work? Are you involved in that at all, Anna? So I'm not involved in the setup of it. We are insured for, so for instance, so for, from a public liability perspective. Um, so we do get involved where we potentially do have civil claims. Uh, we will support by providing information. Yeah, we, we work very closely with the insurance insurance industry on, on a number of levels. And um, sometimes the, the, it's this sort of counter between having a claims culture, which is um, you, you pay out on things which give people the sense that if they do have an accident, it's okay, you know, I'm covered. Um, to the other bit, to pay out, insurers can sometimes be so risk averse that it influences the business to make decisions and to do things which actually is, is not maybe reasonably practicable to use the old term but the um you know that they are obviously an important part of the way that compliance is is seen can influence things in, in that way definitely i think we've got a good working relationship actually with insurers where actually they they provide suggestions but we also we can work with them which if it works really well and yeah actually very pragmatic which is great 
it's been really great to be able to spend some time with you, Anna, and um, the the opportunity to uh, understand where where you've come from, you know, where you where you are now. Interested to see how your studies end up in terms of your what you're doing now, and I hope it goes well for you. It's uh, it's a great behaviours are fascinating, aren't they? And uh, why do people do what they do? I've always uh, said that this thing of people don't have accidents because, or they don't want to become ill because. You know, it's just because there are, there are a number of instant reasons and it's not just one reason. And why do people behave like they do? Uh, definitely. I find it really interesting. And I think a lot of the focus so far on behaviour has been around the safety side of things. Um, so really interested in looking at sort of health and well-being and, and actually how behaviour, so as in organisational health rather than individual and how yeah how behaviour comes into that and find it really interesting. And, and, you know, the tone from the top is the, if, it's, if it comes from the top, then it filters down and... And it sets the the whole culture within the organisation. And if that's not right, and it's not seen to be right, then it uh, makes life very challenging and will impact performance. So, great. Thank you very much for your time with us today. Thanks for giving up time to share your thoughts and your experiences. And I wish you all very best. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.